0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Congressman Adam Smith, author of Lost and Broken, my journey back from chronic pain and crippling anxiety. Representative Adam Smith woke up one morning in April 2016 and seriously considered the possibility that he might never be able to get out of bed. Hobbled by crippling anxiety, chronic pain, muscle atrophy, and a confusing cocktail of medications, he wasn't sure what terrified him more, getting up or staying in bed. It's a struggle millions of Americans know all too well. He shares with unflinching honesty how he got to this lowest point in life and how he slowly painfully and unevenly found his way back to having a calmer mind and to being free of chronic pain and medication. He distills the valuable lessons he learned throughout all of his experiences into key takeaways to empower readers to seek the help and treatments that they need. Adam Smith is the member of Congress who represents the 9th District of the state of Washington, and he was reelected to his 14th term in 2022 and has been the top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee. Welcome to the show, Adam Smith.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, I just have to say I didn't read the book. I listened to the book on Audible and uh, you have a fantastic voice, but I was as I'm listening to you, I really get a sense of your personality. And I was just wondering when you you did the voiceover for the whole book, is that like reliving all of these experiences all over again?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the whole process was reliving the experiences. And that's ultimately, that's why I started writing this, is once I started to get better um, by late 2019, you know, I am an excessively logical person, so I had analyzed every single detail of this struggle. And while it was fresh in my mind, I wanted to write it down primarily just to sort of help me Better understand and, and perhaps learn more about what I had been through and what I needed to do both mentally and physically. Um, and yeah, that whole process was, you know, it continues to be helpful. You know, it's, you know, you, you learn something new every day. And no matter how many times I go back over it, it, I think it does, it, it help, helps me, you know, better understand the, those challenges.
0: And so, what do you want us to know? I mean, as in the intro, we're talking about you have physical and mental disabilities. And especially with mental illness, there's a stigma attached to it. So your book obviously says, okay, if Adam Smith can talk about it, so can we. And that's empowering.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. well, I think the biggest thing that I want people to know is they can get better that there are pathways to dealing with both chronic pain and mental health issues like anxiety and depression. Because, I mean, when I was going through this, that was, you know, a couple big concerns I had. Number one was I didn't want people to know that I had a mental health condition because I thought it would jeopardize my job and my life. And I wanted people to know that's not true, okay, Um, that you can, in fact, confront these things uh, and still, you know, live your life. So number 1 try to reduce the stigma. Number 2 one of the things that things I worried about, I, I was so ignorant on mental health. It's impossible to overstate this. I just I didn't think of it as something that I had to think about. I mean, physical health, you know, you get a physical, you worry about your diet, your exercise, uh, you know, my knee hurts, should I see someone about it. But stress is just stress. Okay, you just get through it. So I really want people to know that mental health does require a little bit of focus. But most importantly, if you have an anxiety and depression problem, there are treatments available that can help you get better. Because I really doubted that. I mean, what I knew about you know therapy or psychiatry when all this hit me was, well, a lot of people go into it; they never seem to get any better. All right, (laughs) Uh, but I really hadn't paid any attention to that, and now that I've been through it. I know that there are treatments that can really help you better deal with anxiety and depression, and I want people to know that so that they will seek help.
0: But there are treatments available, that's true, I, But and in listening to your book, it, they may be available, but access to treatment is not so easy. I mean, this seems to me that is the struggle for many people, and everybody's struggle is different. I mean, you're in a different position than, say, an uneducated person, someone perhaps who doesn't have the finances or the even the intellect to be able to pursue these treatments. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You know, I guess talk about, yeah. in,
1: in, In your question there, there's a couple of different pieces to access. Okay. One is what you said is sort of the block of people not knowing that they have access, maybe not knowing how to think through it, not knowing what the options are or who to ask or how to approach it. And that's why I hope to help people realize that, Yes, you can um, do that. And then the second piece of access is even if you know all of that, maybe you don't have the you don't have the resources. You don't have health insurance. You don't you can't find someone who can see you in, in, in a timely manner. And certainly there are huge policy implications on that that I've I've worked on frankly for much of my career to expand access to health insurance. Bottom line, um, and that's a big picture thing. But I also want to make sure that people know individually that. Even within your limited resources, if you better understand what the mental health field is like and what you're seeking, you can find ways to help yourself. Because as you mentioned, I had access to, access to psychiatrists and psychologists. They weren't helping me for a long time. And I want people to better understand the, the, the basics of mental health and how to approach that. <laughs>
0: You have to prepare yourself for that journey, I think. And one of the things that you talk about, because I'm a social worker, so I'm interested in this. I mean, there are therapists out yeah. there who are supposedly good therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, but I think in the beginning, when the one of the. First therapist that you saw there was really no chemistry uh, maybe and this really didn't work out and that happens a lot and that people have to when they are getting treatment or seeking treatment to be able to say okay this isn't working and to leave and to go on and to find somebody yeah. else which you eventually did do but I think you stayed with this person for what nine months a year almost
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you bounce around on on that a lot. You certainly have to find someone who who you click with. Um, But the other important part about this um, is to to know what, you know, what are you looking for? What's the point of the treatment that you're seeking? And I think part of the problem is within our healthcare system, we don't have a problem-solving mentality. It's more of a, well, here's what we do. You know, we do this surgery, we suggest this as opposed to really understanding the individual patient that you're dealing with and saying, what is the problem? How do we make them better? It's more of an inputs thing. Well, I've come up with this um, thing about intelligence. There's, there's such a thing as subject matter intelligence versus operational intelligence. Most people in healthcare have a great deal of subject matter intelligence. They don't have a lot of operational intelligence. I mean, they know a lot, but in terms of looking at a specific situation and saying, here's how I'm going to solve your problem, you know, or what's going on with you individually. It's not as personalized as it should be. So you need to find, and by the way, this is whether you're talking about mental health or physical. I struggled on both. You need to find a healthcare provider who's going to listen to you, truly hear you, and guide you through your individual situation. Um, I actually think it would be helpful, I think, kind of speaking a little bit uh, abstractly here. I want to make sure people know what I was dealing with. I mean, basically, the point that you started there in April 2016, which is the start of my book when I was pretty much at rock bottom, was was after my third hip surgery, um, and I wasn't getting better. You know, if you've ever had a joint replacement, there's the, okay, well, after six weeks, you should be able to do this, and after 12 weeks, you should be able to do that. I wasn't getting any better, Um, and I've had a huge anxiety problem that started in 2013, and then my chronic pain started in 2014, and then the two just sort of intersected. And what I learned is there was a lifetime of things that I had done that led both to my anxiety and to my physical pain, and I found a psychologist who helped me, and I found a muscle activation therapist who helped me on the physical side. Um, but it was working through all of that um, that I needed to do to get better.
0: Right. So you don't want a formulaic response to whatever your problem is, and you have to... Re- find the right kind of treatment, cognitive behavior therapy, different kinds. Yours is a, a muscular activation therapist. Is that who you're working yeah. with? or It's, yeah.
1: uh, it's muscle, muscle activation therapy. And actually for your listeners, muscle activation techniques. If you Google that, that is the precise group of people who helped me. But look, I can give you the two baselines here. And that's the other thing that I think is helpful. Every problem is going to be unique, like I said. You're going to have to find therapists who can help guide you through your individual problem and really listen and understand you. But there are two basic baselines, which I did not get for a long time. On the physical side, and this is where muscle activation really matters, most physical therapists focus on strength and flexibility. But strength and flexibility aren't going to come if your muscles have shut down. And that's a bizarre concept. It was a bizarre concept to me when they first introduced me to it. But if your body isn't working the way it's supposed to and you're trying to use muscles in ways that they weren't designed to be used, they shut down on you. And that aggravates your problems. And that's what had happened to me. I had knee surgery when I was 16 years old, and I never rehabbed it properly. I overused one side of my body and underused the other and you know, just twisted it all out of shape but I had to get my muscles started again. And that's what the muscle activation folks do. They understand how the patterns of muscles in your body work. They check them to see which ones are working and which ones aren't. And then they have very specific techniques to get those muscles started again. And once your muscles are working properly, you know, I mean, I still have a lack of cartilage in my right knee from the surgery. My spine is misaligned. My pelvis is misaligned, but my muscles work properly now. So I feel better. So that's the physical side. The mental side, and if you, you know, you listen to the book, so you know what I went through on that, the baseline understanding of your own self-worth and really having that explained to you and walked through so that you develop that sense of self-worth, that's where it all starts. Then you have to lead into other things like psychotherapy and uh, behavioral health, um, cognitive, sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy. But for me, I didn't have that baseline understanding of my own self-worth, and that's what my psychologist finally recognized and walked me through. Now, as I point out in the book, I'm somewhat stubborn. It took two and a half (laughs) years of psychotherapy and then another year after that um, to really drive it home. But that baseline is something that I think folks need to understand when they're contemplating their own mental health.
0: Yeah, and I think that's critical. I'm thinking of uh, in terms of you're talking about you had a lack of self worth, and you walk into a therapist's office, and here's a congressman, here's a very successful person, he's you know an attorney, and you could be a very difficult patient or even a scary patient uh, looking at it from the other yeah. side. <laughs> and you're and you describe yourself yeah. as yeah you know, very persistent, very precise. Uh so I want to because I think this didn't come until the last or the 25th or 24th chapter but where did this lack of self-worth come from what's motivating you I mean that whole experience, I want it's in the book so I guess we can talk about it but uh yeah. you you were adopted you never knew you were adopted you never really knew who your biological mother was I mean to me that's a key factor in all of, yeah. you know your so these Absolutely. issues probably I mean, physical yeah, and mental should. yeah
1: Right. It's cliche, but you know, know thyself. You know, you got to know who you are. I mean, I grew up literally not knowing who I was. Um, You know, it wasn't until I was 26 years old and both of the people who I had fought were the only parents I'd ever had. had died um, that I found that out. And yeah, my family, you know, struggled a lot when I was growing up in a variety of different ways. So for whatever reason, I just never got that sort of baseline confidence of security or what uh, psychiatrists like to call a healthy narcissism, and this is really crucial. What it means to have a sense of self worth, and what the argument I had with the psychologist who told me that I didn't have that, or his precise words to me were, "You don't think you have the right to exist." Um, you know, my argument was, "Well, wait a second here. L- let me let me tell you about all the good things I've done in my life. You know, I've been successful professionally. I'm married. I've got kids." And you know, and he kept telling me that how good or bad you are at any of those things has nothing to do with your own self-worth. And that's part of the problem. If you think that your self-worth derives from your deeds, if you will, from what you do or don't do, what you do well or do poorly, then you're basically on a treadmill that's going to speed up until it throws you into the wall. Because as human beings, we're all going to fail. You're going to mess things up. You're not going to do things perfectly. And if that's where you're getting your self-worth from, you're under pressure every second of the day thinking, gosh, if I don't do this well, then you know, it's an existential threat. Self-worth is the basic understanding that every single human being on the planet has basic self-worth, or to get a little Buddhist on you here, mm-hmm. is worthy of love and that you don't have to prove that, Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that what you do in life doesn't matter, but it does mean that what you do in life doesn't go to that fundamental essential self-worth. And what took me so long to get through this is I argued with my therapist, (laughs) and I, I would argue both sides of it. I would argue, you know, no, I've done well, so I shouldn't. No way I feel that way. And then I'd say, well, look, here's all the terrible, awful things I've done. Here's the things I've failed at. Is the relationships that I haven't lived up to my responsibilities from, you know, and I'd be arguing that you know you see I I I should be worried about this, but all of that misses that fundamental point. Self worth is a self evident given that you typically get from a loving and supporting family. All right, um, which I didn't quite have for a variety of different reasons. Um, so, oh, let's talk the about baseline. one of
0: because I think that's important. Like what you didn't have. What ones didn't you have or what, yeah, those feelings that would help you develop a healthy narcissism? Because I think that is key to everything that happened with you. Um,
1: Yes. Well, a lot of times, and this is something that sort of threw my psychologist for a little bit too, a lot of times that, that comes from childhood trauma you have uh, an abusive environment or you have a very unstable environment. Like if you have a parent who's a drug addict or an alcoholic, um, you know, so you have that instability in your youth. And I, I didn't really have that. I mean, my adoptive mother had a depression problem. My adoptive father had an anxiety problem, but they were functional. Um, these were things that frankly I didn't learn until much later. Um, big thing was, first of all, I was adopted. I didn't know it. I stayed with my biological mother for 10 days before I was given up for adoption, um, which is not a great way to do it, as psychologists will now recognize. And also, it's really bad if you grow up not knowing it. You do need to tell a child who he or she is. I mean, the timing of that you know, can depend. But then within the household that I grew up in, as I said, my mother had a depression problem. My father had an anxiety problem. I had an older brother who had all kinds of problems, um, you know, was in and out of jail. You know, had, it was I had an unstable upbringing um, that I never properly dealt with. But one of the biggest things also was that I felt like a failure because the family I grew up in had sort of fallen apart. You know, as I mentioned, both my parents died relatively young, I don't have a relationship with either one of my brothers and I felt like a failure and i never really addressed that issue. And that's the second big mental health thing is you have to be honest with yourself about what's happened in your life past and present and how you truly feel about it. Is there anger about things that you're, you're just burying instead of dealing with? Do you feel guilty about things that you haven't properly addressed? And that's the other big thing that psychotherapy gives you is the opportunity to deal with those things. And most dramatically, if you've had trauma in your life that you haven't dealt with, psychotherapy, and there are some other therapies, which I'm sure you're familiar with, EMDR and some others, they really help you experience that trauma and deal with it so that you can get past it. And that really does work um, if if people are willing to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you get your life back in balance. The word balance comes up. You are... Yeah, and and that's what's important, or that's what's critical. One of the things when somebody has a either a physical or a, a mental health issue is support, and I think maybe you mentioned that earlier in the interview. And I'm thinking you, you talk about your wife and being supportive, but the whole family has a problem when one person has a problem. So yeah. we haven't, and you don't really get too much into it. I think. In the book, in terms of your relationship with your wife, but how she handled it, how your kids handle your your mental health and your physical disabilities so how does how how has that worked in terms of the family relationship
1: yeah one of the other thing that in, in terms of writing this book as I mentioned. Large number of people, as you know, are suffering from anxiety, depression, or chronic pain, or some combination of that. But then there's an even larger number of people who have somebody close to them in their life that is dealing with those things, um, and it it's difficult. It's a huge challenge because you really you don't you can't understand what the other person is going through. And I guess the one point I like to make on that is when people think of anxiety and depression, they think of well, anxiety is stress, and depression is when you're feeling down no <laughs> i've I've been stressed, I've been feeling down, I've also been depressed and had anxiety and it is a it is a line you cross over that is unlike anything else you've experienced. The anxiety is like a twenty four seven feeling of existential threat that just won't go away and isn't necessarily tied to any specific thing, same with depression. I had depression only once in my life when I was younger, but you just, you're not interested in anything. You're just constantly down and it doesn't necessarily again have a specific cause that you can identify. So I think helping people understand what your loved one is actually going through, um, is, is important. And then, and then to be as supportive as possible while also living your life. And that, you know, frankly, the best thing that my my wife and and kids did for me throughout this is, yes, they helped me, but they also didn't let what I was going through, you know, completely, you know, alter their lives. Um, You have to be able to keep doing what you're doing while while you're also providing support to the loved one because you don't want want to cause yourself greater problems while you're trying to deal with that.
0: You talk about uh, resilience and stress and we all have stress. So it's not really whether or not we have stress because we all have stress, but how resilient yeah. we are. And I think you mentioned in the book about it's how you process that stress. I'm get, getting back to that because that's really, I think, critical um, because people do talk about if I just get rid of this, I stop doing this. I, if I'm you know, uh, alleviate some of the, get rid of some of the things I'm doing, I'll feel better. Not necessarily true.
1: Yeah, well, that was the first mistake I made because I had my first attack of anxiety eight years before uh, the one that finally, you know, I couldn't deal with, which I just, you know, I just sort of got over. But my conclusion in 2005 when I experienced that first bout of anxiety was I was just too busy. You know, I just had to find some way to reduce the amount of stress with it. That doesn't deal with the underlying cause with the anxiety you feel from things that have gone on in your life that you have not properly dealt with. Um, And then the last piece of all of this, so you got to have your baseline sense of self-worth. You have to be honest about your, your, your history, past and present. And then cognitive behavioral therapy really does work to help teach you how your mind works, that you don't have to go chasing after every emotion. This is what meditation did for me. I mean, Meditation isn't about clearing all thoughts out of your head. Now, maybe some people can be just incredibly present and be able to do that, um, but very few can. What you can do is you can realize that you don't have to chase every thought that comes into your head. And that was one of the most useful things in this is just take a couple minutes out of a day and go, okay, I'm not going to think through anything. I'm just going to notice what's going on around me, what thoughts, sounds, feelings, smells, whatever, notice them and understand that you don't have to chase them. You don't have to deal with them. They're just there. That helps you not chase after every emotion that you have, because our emotions can trick us. Our emotions can tell us that, you know, the look on somebody's face, you know, means that my boss is about to fire me. Mm-hmm. And then you go down this rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? What did, you know, And it's like, no, let's think about this a little bit more logically. The emotion is there, all right? But that doesn't mean that it's accurate, and you can really train your mind to better deal with that. I, I, I tell this story about my first campaign back in 1996, which was a high-profile race against an incumbent, um, You know, millions of dollars spent, very close. The weekend before, I went doorbelling, and my opponent had gone through the neighborhood or somebody for him had gone through the neighborhood before me. And so every door that I walked up to had a brochure sitting on it, basically telling everybody how terrible I was and why they shouldn't vote for me. And in my mind, everybody was reading that. Everybody was believing it, and this was going to decide the election. And that feeling was, was palpably real I mean, as real as anything you could experience, it was also wrong, all right? And you can teach your mind to go, okay, your mind's tricking you here. Let's, let's stop and think through this just a little bit. So cognitive behavioral therapy can teach you to better deal with the, the stresses that you're dealing with in life. I think mean, all of those things combine to put you in a better better place and in terms of your mental health.
0: And talking about better place, and we only have a couple of minutes left, but this is a big part of the book as yeah. well, managing your meds, because uh, if you can, yeah, because yeah, uh, that's huge uh, for you, but for most people when they start therapy. So um, yeah, tell us about that, because that's, that's critical. Sure.
1: First of all, two quick things about this. Number one, bedrock belief. We way over medication for mental health problems. We do it too quick, we do it too much, we do it too often. And many, many times, those medications are more of an impediment to getting better than a pathway to it. Now that's number one. Number two is, that said, undoubtedly, there are people who benefit from medication. So I don't wish to imply that they're not. I just wish we would be more cautious about prescribing these things. Benzodiaphamines in particular, they're great at relieving your anxiety in the short term. I mean, when I first started taking them, it was like a miracle that my anxiety just disappeared. But you build up a tolerance, so you need more and more to get to that place, and it's not addressing the underlying issue. Not to mention the fact, as someone who's come off of benzodiazepines about, I don't know, five different times, it's not easy. So more caution about using medication, same with antidepressants, and The way I try to explain this, and sometimes I struggle, but SSRIs, which is your basic antidepressant, are supposed to reset the serotonin levels in your brain, the thinking being that the reason you have anxiety or depression is because, just biologically, your serotonin levels are in a different place than other people. Um, And I think that can be true, but it's more likely the case that there are issues going on that you could better address through psychotherapy and other therapies than that drug that is simply going to artificially mask it. So my advice here is I'm not, as I like to say, I'm not going to go all Tom Cruise on you and say don't ever <laughs> take medication. Um, I just wish that the medical profession and patients would be more cautious about doing it. And the primary reason that we do it is because it's the easy fix.
0: Yeah,
1: it's you a know, quick thing. Doctors it can don't be have a time I hate to cut
0: act. you off. We have 30 yeah, seconds I'll, left. I could, but we want people to read the book or listen to the book which i did which i really really liked lots of good information lost and broken my journey back from chronic pain and crippling anxiety and i've been talking to congressman adam smith um adam just give us a website that we can go to for more information about the so, book yeah, I, and I, yeah
1: Yeah. The book you can find on Amazon. Uh, That's the easiest place to get it. Website. I don't have a website on the personal side, but my website professionally, if you want to know more about me, is adamsmith at mail.house.gov. And then I have a couple of different, uh, from there you can find uh, Instagram and Twitter. And on the professional side, I I have Facebook as well.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Lots of good information.
1: Thanks. Thanks for the chance.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.